0: Acts chapter 20. We're moving through the book of Acts in the study of the advance of the kingdom. I trust has been helpful. It's the first time I've studied at length through the book myself, so we're all in this together. There are A few questions yet to be answered as we finish out this account. And this morning... Much like the Sunday school hour, for some of you that were in the equip class, we, we considered the idea of bookends in biblical literature. And this morning, we have some bookends. Uh, some of you don't even know what bookends are, I should probably clarify. <laughs> There's a few of you who don't know what books are, perhaps. Uh, you're already growing up on the iPad, so... Uh, uh, bookends, you know, are those matching figurines or blocks that kind of hold a stack of books on the shelf. Um, in the text, when we have bookends, we have a topic or a theme mentioned at the beginning of a text and at the end, helping us then to interpret that text. Those those bookends in a text are showing us. Hey, this is where it began, and that's how it ends. And the stuff in the middle probably serves that same theme. So it's something at least to be attentive to when you are reading Scripture. In our text, beginning in verses 1 and 2, we have Paul sending for the disciples, and after encouraging them, verse 2, he had given them much encouragement... So this paragraph is beginning with encouragement. We can't miss it. It's been said twice. The end of the paragraph is there in verse 12. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little, it's the same word, encouraged. Your Bible might say comforted. But it's the same Greek word as the encouraged at the beginning. Then we have verses 13 to 16, which are not uncommon in Acts, but they're, they're verses that are kind of a transition. It's just uh, it's the data about his traveling that could go with the previous or with the latter paragraph. And so I want us to think on these bookends. Paul encouraged the disciples. He had given encouragement. At the end of the story, they were greatly encouraged or kind of said the opposite way. They, they were no, there was no little encouragement or comfort that happened there. So what is this word encourage or comfort? That's important since it bookends our text. We want to know what we're talking about because we use the word encouragement. But I want to make sure it's rooted in the the Bible definition. This word encourage is kind of two words, alongside and to call. To call alongside. Again, we've talked about this word before. Uh, it's the, the, the best English word or my favorite English word for this is to coach. So calling out to someone and at times calling them over to the sideline. Like, hey, guys, come in, come here. Here, do this, this, and this. Now get back out there. It's a, it's a coming alongside to instruct. This noun form of our word here is the very word Jesus uses to label the Holy Spirit In John 14, when he says another comforter will come. Another paraclete, para alongside, and the kaleo is the call. So this other one will come. Jesus was alongside the disciples, calling them to follow. Another coming alongside one would call them to faithfulness, that being the Holy Spirit. It's a big word, so it can be used to serve various contexts. If somebody is sorrowful, then we could say comfort for this word. If somebody's just kind of losing heart, we could say encourage. If someone's in legal trouble, we could say an advocate. All these words are the same Greek word. They're helping us understand encouraging someone. Even by the time some of these words get to our English language, they're still instructive to us if we think about them. N, courage. E-N being I-N in our English, to, to enter into or bring into a place of courage. When you encourage someone, you're stabilizing them, strengthening them for a task. Think of the word comfort. Cum, Latin, with, forte. You musicians know that one. It's Not just loud, it's strong. So the word comfort is actually meaning with strength. You come to someone and you comfort them by bringing strength somehow. As Christians, when we come to the Bible, we learn about how to strengthen one another. So whether the word is comfort, comfort or encourage, understand these are deep words that mean somebody is weak, feeble, struggling, discouraged, downhearted, sorrowful, and you come and something you do, something you say, something you point them to leads them to a place of greater strength, courage. So when we encourage each other, we're strengthening, pointing perhaps to a source of strength. Encouragement is our subject for our study, which means encouragement is our assignment as we go from this place. To know what the Bible says about encouragement and then to practice it. We must learn from this passage, how to help others be strong in their living for the Lord, in their following of Jesus, in their advance of the kingdom. This week, you need to encourage the people in your life in their following of Jesus. You might do a lot of other things that could fall under biblical responsibility, but you're failing as a follower of Jesus if you're not helping other followers to be strengthened in their Christian life. You need to encourage your spouse, your kids, your friends, your church family, your elders, your missionaries in their following of Jesus. It may be with words or actions, with scripture references. You may do it in person, on social media, in writing. The applications are many. Just pick one. Pick the person, pick the means, and get busy with encouragement. It's our big idea this morning, that that encouragement is essential in the daily work of kingdom living. You need to encourage others, and you need to be encouraged by others. Now, how does this text help us to understand that? It's an interesting text. It has some travel. It has some names of co-laborers. It has a fascinating story of Eutychus. But somehow, it's all captured in... The beginning of the story, encouragement, and the end of the story, encouragement. So what do we learn about encouragement from our text? Number one, encouragement is purposeful. It is purposeful in giving. In verse one, Paul sent for the disciples, and then we're told why. And after encouraging them... After pointing them to, pushing them to a greater place of stability and strength, after that, he departs. Verse 2, when he had given them much encouragement, he sails on. Encouragement must be the theme of our discipleship. Now, there may be other themes, but encouragement must Carry us through this process. Why did Paul get the disciples together? Why did he call the other believers together? To encourage them, to bring them to a place of strength by what he taught and said. By next Sunday, you should have brought somebody into a place of strength. They were weak. They were overwhelmed with sorrow. They were discouraged. They were doubting. And by the things you said and did, you brought them to a greater place. It's as if you took a toddler who's learning to take their first steps by the hand, and you walked them down the hallway. Oh, they may have made it eventually, but it would have been slow and tedious and marked by several falls. But your strength as an adult encouraged, brought them into a place of strength. That's our task this week. So how will we do that? That's a question you can answer only when you're committed to the reality that encouragement is on purpose. It's not, it doesn't just happen if you happen to remember to send someone a card or say a kind word or to pray for them. It is supposed to be purposeful. He sent for these disciples. Why? To encourage. And then he labors to give encouragement, and only then does he feel like he can move on. Be purposeful about encouragement. This may sound odd, but write it on your calendar. Put it on your to-do list. Let your phone make that ringing sound, and instead of, you know, something else that has to get done, stop and get spaghetti noodles on the way home from work. It's, oh yeah, three days have gone by and I've not said one word of encouragement to anybody. Set your phone for Wednesday and see if you're not reminded the same way I have been. The thought of seeing that and realizing, what have I done with encouragement for days? Now you might have to set it every day until that habit becomes the routine of your life, that you become someone who gives encouragement on purpose. Work it into your conversations. How will you help someone to be strong? That's what you're called to do. Our second point gets to the why of encouragement. Because encouragement is necessary. It's necessary for the weakness that we all experience. It's, it's a reality. Our bodies and our minds, and you could expand that in the language of our emotional kind of capacity, it's all going to dry up. It's going to wear out. We're going to get to that place that we call exhaustion. Why is it that discouragement and depression are often spoken of in that context of being so tired. They go hand in hand, physically, spiritually, when we lack the drive to go about our responsibilities as functioning adults, and at times when we even lack the drive to come to the water of life and drink of the word we understand the necessity of encouragement. I think we separate in our minds that kind, of, that kind of exhaustion and discouragement from the language of encouragement. We think encourage means kind of just pat people on the back and see them after the service and kind of be a friendly person, but it's much more than that. The reality is we are not designed to make it in this life groaning through all of a sin-cursed existence to heaven. We're not designed to make it on our own. There's nothing in the Bible that says you get saved and, and now you're on this adventure. You're this, you know, trailblazing explorer going where no one has gone before. All of Scripture is the opposite. From the moment of your faith in Christ, you are baptized into the body of Christ. And everything from that point on is, we are in this together. There's no tape stretched across the course of the Christian life that you, to the, the, the swelling cheers of the crowd, will break through and be first. No. Read Ephesians 4. Till we all, as the body of Christ, come in unity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're all in this together. And we need to recognize that weakness is a reality, that we will get tired on our pilgrim journey. We will face hardships, we'll get worn out. Verse 3 reminds us of the constant opposition that Paul faced. Verse 1, encouraging disciples, moving on to the next place. Verse 2, encouraging disciples, moving on to the next place. Verse 3, oh yeah, here we go again. A plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. I guess the plot must have been, get him on the boat and get a few miles from shore. Bump him overboard by accident because he decides, I guess I'll just stay on land. And he's going to meet up with them later, but he's not getting on that boat having heard what the plot was to get rid of them. More opposition. And threatening opposition at that. And really, if we jump to verses 13 to 16, we we just see at least the, the tiring details of the itinerant ministry of the Apostle Paul. So in those verses, it's really just from place to place, and how they eventually will all connect, and then Paul wants to get to Jerusalem. When you think of all that land travel, it's leaving Greece and kind of heading over to Asia Minor, what's now Turkey, and all those little cities that are listed are just little ports along the shore, a bunch of little island stops. And if you looked on your Bible maps, you probably have Paul's first, second, and third missionary journey, and you can see the mileage and What that would have meant in that day, a lot of it by foot, some of it by boat, it's just an exhausting life. And so you understand with the opposition he's faced in the work and just the amount of effort it would take to do this work of spreading the gospel, we can understand something of weariness and the need for encouragement. So this begs two questions. Do you know anyone who is weak, tired, frustrated, discouraged? Our text would say, do something. Paul knew that disciples needed encouragement, so he sent for them. He did something. Then his next stop... He gave all this encouragement before he left. It was purposeful, but it met a real need. Do you know anyone who is discouraged? Do something. Reach out. Be purposeful. Second question. Who do you turn to when you are weak, tired, frustrated, or discouraged. See, it's the same solution. Do something. Reach out. Be purposeful. Don't let the devil go to work in that mindset of weariness and discouragement. If you're not quickly finding your way out, then ask someone to take you by the hand and lead you out. I don't think the words weak, tired, frustrated, maybe even discouraged are all that self-incriminating. That's not that much of a blow to our pride, I would hope, that we couldn't tell someone, I'm just really tired. I'm just really worn out. Maybe to say discouraged is hard for you to say. Maybe you'd choke on that one coming out because that might imply some kind of weakness. Pick any of those words and start chipping away at that pride and get accustomed to reaching out and telling people, Pray for me, I'm just, I'm just beat up after last week. It may not be the biggest deal ever, but if it's a deal in your spiritual walk, then you should be reaching out for encouragement, someone to point you to strength, to the source of hope. Do you know anyone who is weak, tired, frustrated, discouraged? And what will you do when you're weak, tired, frustrated, and discouraged. Because if we're going to acknowledge life is hard and there is a need for encouragement, then we need to be ready to act on that. So points one and two kind of go together. Encouragement should be happening on purpose. It's part of discipleship. Discipleship isn't just knowledge, though that's a key part of it. We teach the new believer all the things that Jesus taught us. It's in, right there in the Great Commission. But we do that as does the Holy Spirit teach us, as the comforter, encourager, exhorter coach. We help people down this path. This leads us right to our third observation. Encouragement is fostered by cooperation. In verses 4 to 6, there's this explanation of the people and the plan of this team effort of spreading the gospel. Remember, it's not just Paul. We call them Paul's missionary journeys, but others traveled those miles as well. Others traveled different miles when Paul would send them to other plans. So really, the, the little dotted path you might follow in your Bible is just Paul's path, but others went on other paths and at times went with Paul. And our text is helpful to to name names and remind us that other people were important in this plan of God. We've studied that earlier in Acts. But it's good to hear the names and reckon with the thought of a team of servants that made Paul's ministry possible. Sopater, likely the same as Romans 16.21. There he's called a kinsman of Paul some distant relative perhaps. Aristarchus, he's a little bit of a lightning rod. We know a couple of things about him. One, the chapters before at the riot at Ephesus, Paul's companions kind of kept him out, but the guy they arrested and kind of wanted to put in the, on the stand, so to speak, was our buddy Aristarchus. So he's the one seized in the Ephesian riot, and later he's the one who's a fellow prisoner with Paul in Rome, we read in Colossians. So he liked to be on the front line, front line of kind of taking the, the brunt of the blow of Paul's opposition. Good for him. Maybe that was kind of the kind of guy he was. Nobody's going to touch my buddy Paul. So he got in front and he took it on the chin. There, There's something Biblical and heroic about that kind of intercessor. That kind of, that kind of rescuer, that kind of stand between mediator. Segundus, it's a humble name. Maybe he was the stabilizing humility of the group. Gaius, we're not really told many details of him. There's another man by a similar name mentioned earlier. Timothy is this longtime student of Paul. Tychicus. Mentioned in Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy, he's kind of Paul's representative while he's in prison. And then Trophimus. We'll read about him in the coming chapter. He's the center of a stir that would get Paul arrested in Jerusalem and lead to really ultimately his death at the hands of the Romans. And then, of course, there's Luke, who's not mentioned by name, but in verse 13 we see the return of the language of we, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assis. So once again, Luke has joined this team of men with the apostle. And so now we're looking at eight, nine men, named at least, who knows who else traveled with them, in this group effort. Now remember, our our, our bookends were encouragement in verses 1 and 2 and encouragement in verse 12. So when we stop and ask, why does he name names? our first thought should at least be, does this have anything to do with how people are encouraged? And I don't think there's like a big stretch to make that work, to think in this group effort, encouragement flowed, was fostered, was nurtured. And so we should take heart in God's good plan for the cooperative effort of God's people in what we call the church. And I don't even mean just Grace Bible Church, though that is more often than not where most of the fleshing out of your Christian life happens. But let's face it, we all know believers around the city or in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, and they're in other churches, and there is even with them a camaraderie, a togetherness, an opportunity for encouragement in following Jesus. In advancing the kingdom. And that's why when you see your neighbor and they might have their yard sign, we go to such and such a church or Easter services at this place. If if that's a gospel preaching ministry, you should encourage those neighbors. Say thanks for doing that. Thanks for making your church known. Thanks for representing your church and your Lord. We should be a people who recognize We need to encourage each other. We're in this together. In this season, we should be thankful for multiple elders. We should be thankful for deacons. Some of you might not even be able to name the ones who carry some of the weight of serving among us. We should be thankful for ministry coordinators, for those who teach the children. Your kids are learning big stuff. Some of the the curriculum we've used over the years has been would have been good for the adult Sunday school class. They're studying the promises of God or might be couched in the language of the ABCs of God, but it's his character that unfolds in scripture. Somebody's digging into the word and then trying to present it line by line, precept by precept to our kids. I can't say my kids are the kids they are today just because of me or Carrie It's because of some of you, many of you that have inputted into their lives. Sometimes in the classroom, sometimes in the yank them by the arm and quit your running. (laughs) But it works. It's an investment that pays off, it's encouragement. It's It's leading them to a place of strength and stability in knowing who God is. We can be thankful for nursery workers that give young moms who have labored all week long maybe an opportunity to sit and just listen undistracted to the word. That's kind of the whole point of the nursery. Maybe you can do it on your own, but if you want that respite and let someone else care for your child, then they're there to serve, to encourage, to strengthen. We have greeters, we have group leaders, you have guys working every week in the booth, but it's not really just there. It's all week long. It's, it's pulling PowerPoint slides on Friday night or Saturday when you're doing something on your own time. But it's so that when the body gathers, they would be encouraged. They would be brought into courage and strength as we sing of who our God is. We can be grateful for maintenance work and grounds work and musicians work. As it's all designed to strengthen us in our following of Jesus Christ. So names are named. Sometimes a little bio is attached there. But it just reminds us there is a togetherness. In cooperative service, encouragement is fostered. Paul would write in Philippians 1 of laboring side by side for the sake of the gospel. I wasn't at the work day a couple weeks back, but to think of guys literally swinging a pick and digging with a shovel to dig a trench to drain some water, and you're just side by side, and digging gets tiring pretty quick, so you drop out, the next guy steps in, but it's side by side for the sake of this project moving along, And yet Paul says, you know what it is to work next to somebody, digging a ditch or in a cubicle to get the work project done. It's the same with the gospel. We're in this together. And side by side doing it, I know you're tired, and you know when I'm tired, but we encourage each other that this project is worth it, and it'll get done. The gospel is worth it, and it will work. Jesus will build his church. Number four, encouragement is anchored in God's word. We come to this story then in the middle of our encouragement. Courage to the disciples, encourage the disciples, verse 1 and 2. The disciples are encouraged, verse 12. And in the middle, we have Paul with this group up in the upper room. Encouragement is anchored in God's word. I should note, even in verse 1 there, our text begins after the uproar ceased. If you weren't with us last week, you might not remember what the uproar is or was. The uproar was a a mass mob of people that filled the theater in Ephesus, which would hold 25,000 people, and for two hours, that many people are chanting, almost like in a dark trans. Uh, they're chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it's almost like they're plugging their ears, and that's all they want to hear and say is, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then we read, After that uproar ceased, Paul sends for the disciples and encourages them. With that, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians ringing in their ears, Paul says, no, 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 remember, great is the God of heaven. And having encouraged the disciples, he moved on. Then we see a little bit of detail. They're in this upper room, first day of the week. They've gathered together to break bread. There are two real helpful studies there. One, how did did we move the, the Sabbath law through Moses to a Lord's Day celebration? And two, is this breaking of bread a meal uh, because it's evening after a long work day or is this some kind of Lord's Supper? Uh, Those would be things to explore and we can come back to that. But remember, we're, we're studying encouragement in this paragraph. So something about this story is designed to make us go away encouraged because that's how the text ends in verse 12. They took that young man away alive And there was no little amount of comfort amongst that crowd of people leaving that upper room. So our first focus is comfort. We can come back and try to figure out those other questions uh, as kind of logistical matters in the church's practice. But for this morning, our focus is the encouragement that unfolds. So remember, it's the first day of the week. Uh, Odd transition in this point in the church's history But the first day of the week would be a a long work day for everyone. It's not like we have. They didn't have two-day weekends and and time off and whole days given for gathered worship celebrations. So Paul's likely beginning his teaching late into the evening. We see in verse 7, Paul talked with them. At the end of verse 7, he prolonged his speech until midnight. Verse 9, Paul talked still longer. And then again in verse 11, he conversed with them. The conclusion, verse 12, they were greatly comforted. It's important to note that Paul's teaching ministry, the words he shared, the encouragement Far outlasted his physical presence there. This is the power of encouragement that's based not in my presence with you, which can be encouraging and can be an expression of the Lord's care for us. You come alongside somebody sorrowing, put your arm on their shoulder and say, And I'm here for you. That means something, it represents something, but it is insufficient without further than encouragement, meaning I give you strength that is beyond me. If your strength is because I'm here with you, I got things to do. Like your loss can never be felt by me as much as it is by you. I cannot be here and walk through life with you. So my presence being here has to represent someone's greater presence, and I need to point you to that. We talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, that's that one short moment. But you can only do that for so long. And then it has to be Jesus. So recognize Paul's teaching here is that source of encouragement because we've already seen twice in verse one and verse two, he encouraged and then he left. So Paul's message is not, I'll be here for you. You know, I'll never leave you. Uh, we're in this together. No, he's pointing them to their source of strength, their Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the first time we heard about him encouraging the churches, what was the message? Acts 14, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Hey, be encouraged. I got to go. Not the kind of guest speaker you usually bring in, right? So mark carefully that the words of encouragement will linger when they are words that are anchored in the truth of who God is. As much as your heart might break for someone and long to help them, you can't be everything they need. It's not practical, and it's really not even biblical. We must point people to the truth. And so the teaching ministry of the apostle is what is highlighted in these one, two, three, four different references to him engaging them with his words. His presence was nice, it was appreciated, it represents something for a moment, but what would linger would be the truth that he was proclaiming. The way of the world for encouragement these days is telling you that you can feel better about yourself by believing that you're something, by believing that you can do anything you put your mind to. So I feel better by believing that I'm something. It's really flattery, even if it's self-flattery. We call it self-esteem. But since self-esteem doesn't really find a clear biblical definition, we're probably on track to think of flattery. That's the way of the world. Sometimes we might stumble into a mimicking of the world's ideas. We have to be careful of this as parents, not telling our kids, you know, oh, you, you can do everything. You can do anything you want. Oh, you're, you're, you're great. Probably not. You know, my parents reminded me pretty quickly, I'll never be any good at basketball. Guys my size don't play college basketball. They don't, no, that's not going to happen. Do something else. You can't be anything you want to be. That, that, every, everyone knows that. That's, that's the weird kind of irony of it. So let's be done with flattery of other people. Uh, let's be done with the cliches. It'll be okay. Well, what if it's not? So let's just, let's just get down to what is true, what truly brings stability and strength. Instead of I feel better by believing that I'm something, I need to get to the place where I say, I feel better by believing that God is something. And it's you that might tell me what I need to hear about God. For most of us telling each other about God, we're not going to come up with something new, I don't think. But it will be something we've likely forgotten, it's something that we've called into question. We need somebody on purpose because of my weakness or discouragement to speak truth that stabilizes and strengthens. True encouragement says I feel better by believing that God is something. Not because the situation will get better or because you're here with me. I need to know about God ultimately. And if you can show him to me in your love and compassion, in your presence here in the moment, then that's part of God's plan. We see that. But that is what I call the short-term immediate care. The long-term is I've got to be steering you to God because I've got you I'm steering to God and the next person and the next person. I can't be everything to everyone. You can't be everyone to everyone. You can't be enough to your spouse or to your own kids let alone this whole body. So tap into a much greater resource. Point them to God. Encourage them, strengthen them. Let them feel better because they know who God is. They know his name. They know his history of dealing with his people. You remind them of his promises. Finally, See that encouragement is representative of new life. Our text now links a story of resurrection, new life, to our theme of encouragement. We see it there in verse eight. There's all these lamps in the upper room. So picture all dark flickering candles, and the text has already told us Paul's going long in his sermon, verse 7. All these factors combine to overcome Eutychus, who it says falls kind of backward out the window to the outside, three stories down to his death. And that, that's Dr. Luke will take his word for it, right? He would know. Not just unconscious, but Luke summarizes that the situation is he fell three stories down and he was dead. Paul takes him up in his arms, restores him to life. And I know what you're thinking from verse 9. It seems to indicate that long preaching is detrimental to your health, right? Right? I'm only looking at my watch uh, because I'm a good stewardship of my body, Pastor. Like, you got to finish up. Someone could fall right into the aisle and could get ugly. No, I think there's something more we can learn here. I think this is a vivid picture. A lasting reminder, certainly for those who saw it and for us who read it, of the new life that is brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're being reminded... of of what encouragement is ultimately sourced in. If encouragement were this appliance, where do I plug it in to make it work? Where do I take this tool of encouragement and use it on people, right? Where do I plug it in though? And I plug it in to the gospel, a gospel that empowers, a gospel that gives life, a gospel that says you couldn't do this You didn't have the strength, but someone else does. So lean on his strength. The gospel says you can't save yourself. You can't keep the law. You can't be righteous on your own. But Jesus has done that. So you need his righteousness and his strength, his record of obedience. Speaking of a lack of power, speaking of Eutychus being dead... Paul would write to this location where he was, Ephesus. And in chapter 2, he would say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we were Eutychus. We fell out the window dead. But how does Ephesians 2 continue? I'm only going to read the highlights of verses two or 1 to 5. Verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. When Eutychus fell dead, and Luke said as much, Paul went down, I assume that's down a couple of floors of stairs on the outside, and he says he took him up in his arms. It has like an, the idea of the Old Testament prophet spreading his whole body out over this dead child there, Elisha or Elijah. He took up this body, and, and the life was restored to him. New life, life from the dead encouragement is the constant rehearsing of the story of new life that is found in Christ now it may not mean when you talk to your discouraged friend you tell them to remember Jesus died for their sin but you might you might send them the text or, or the uh, the singing of the old rugged cross and remember oh yeah the prince of glory died so that I could live today. And when he came out of that tomb, he made it clear that the gates of hell can't prevail against the advance of his kingdom. So I need to take heart. I know it looks bad. And I know I just came through a hard Thanksgiving season where my unsafe family wanted to hear nothing of Christ. I'm discouraged. But I'll take heart remembering Jesus saves And we plug into that gospel. Our encouragement is ultimately representative of new life. You're telling someone, Are you lacking a little bit of life, a little bit of faith? Let me bolster that up. Let me kind of stand underneath you and recite a few verses to you to strengthen you for the task God has you to do. And then eventually you'll stand on those promises and I can just slip right away. You don't need me, I'm not your support. I'm not your refuge and strength. I can't strengthen you by my right hand. I can't keep you from being dismayed, but I can tell you who can. And as proof that he will, I'll tell you that story of the gospel all over again. He came and died for you. When you couldn't save yourself, he made that his priority. So this miracle reminds us of the power of God. The same power that brings life from death can bring strength out of our weakness. That's why Paul said, I will glory in my infirmities, in my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ would be seen in me. So that I would manifest encouragement. As he wrote also to the Ephesians, the power that brought Christ from the dead is the same power at work in us to live our godly lives. When you encourage, when you comfort, when you exhort, when you coach in the Christian life, you are rehearsing the truth of the gospel that God can do by his grace what we cannot do ourselves. So point people to the power of God. Point them to the grace of God. Point them to the gospel of God. Point them to the hope that is in God. So what do we do? As we go from here this week, maybe even today, two things. One, see weakness. Open your eyes to it. Pray that God would give you an antenna to weakness, to discouragement. Some of you are good at reading even facial expressions. You'll go up to someone and say, hey, everything all right? And that person's like, well, how did you even know? It's like, well, because you looked like death warmed over. Like, <laughs> and then some of us kind of oblivious, you know? We just kind of go through and we don't, we don't catch some of that. We should get better at that. We, we should hear in words and see in faces the discouragement or the weariness. Sometimes it may not be some huge circumstantial thing. It just, it's just weariness. But you can encourage. You can bring strength and comfort. So see that weakness and weariness and then share the source of hope and strength. Could it be that we could set a goal for next Sunday that by the time we gather, we could all say that we saw a need, minor or major, and then we shared strength and hope? Surely we could do that. Surely we could all gather next week and kind of just know that we were doers of the word, especially a word as common as encouragement. Don't let it escape you. This is what God has set before us to feast on, and now we can share this feast, this gospel, our hope with others. Heavenly Father, thank you for a passage on encouragement for names named and stories told that remind us 2,000 years later that we live among people with names and we're living out similar stories and we need encouragement just like they did. We need reminders of the gospel just like they did. We need you just like they did. And so encourage us and with the comfort that we've received, may we get good at comforting others. Give us a voice, Lord, your voice, your words to speak to those that need it this week. Maybe it'll be in the routine of regular relationships. Maybe it'll be in some bizarre circumstance that you guide us into. But by your Holy Spirit, whispering your truth to us, may we not escape our responsibility to be encouragers this week. And may it all flow from the joy and the, hope, and the power of the gospel, that we have repented and believed in Jesus, our rescuer, our Savior, our Lord, our friend, as we sang this morning, for the encouragement that we have in Christ by your word and through the Spirit, and for every good gift that we have that comes to us. Ultimately, through the good gift of Jesus, our Lord, we give you our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.